G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Other reviews you can leave for d- different uh, different podcasts. That would be that would be good. Um, so it would be honestly, it'd be very good. It uh, helps with the metrics, getting this information out to the people who want to listen to it. So today we don't have Brian in the studio, so you, uh, you're going to have to blame me for the audio quality. Um, but uh, but we are joined by Rose Testas, who is one of our lecturers in ophthalmology here at the RVC. So uh, so thank Hello. you, Rose, for for uh, for coming here and uh, and joining us in the in the studio. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and what I thought we were going to talk about today is, is, is really uh, the equine um, ophthalmic diseases or like an approach to uh, equine ocular uh, problems. Ophthalmic, ocular, is, is there is there a difference of when you use those? Uh, I guess uh, equine ophthalmology we could use. Equine okay. Sounds good. Ocular diseases, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. So, um, so uh, I know that, uh, that you know that Charlotte was, uh, we, we spoke to Charlotte about an approach to the ophthalmic exam and Mm -hmm. so are there differences do you think when you're approaching a horse than a dog or cat or any other species i think one of the challenges is um where to do the ophthalmic exam to start with um you're probably familiar that we need uh, a room with not a lot of light um since the light would reflect onto the surface of the eye and avoid us to see into the eye um as well as in a dark room um, so that what might be one of the challenges that we have, especially for vets seeing horses on the field. Um, that with environmental light or the daylight, you might miss quite a lot since the myosis will be quite marked and the surface of the eye will be quite reflective of, your, of the surrounding. So the first challenge and one of the first differences that we probably need to um, move that horse into stocks or into the box um, so we can um, do uh, the most complete, the most proper exam that we can, actually. Um, do you horses mind so much? I, I'm, I'm not very uh, horsey at, at, at all, but if you darken the environment that they're in, do they, are they calm in that environment or do they, do they get quite upset? I think that's quite uh, specific from every horse, I imagine. Uh, I would say that routinely um, for... The exam that we perform here at the RVC, on a special exam that we use a lot of magnification, like SD lamp magnification, they need to be quite still. Um, so generally we sedate them for the exam. There's other things that you can do to uh, facilitate your examination, such as periocular nerve blockings, especially uh, if you've got a painful horse. Um, they can be quite head shy. Um, and for you to be able to do a proper exam, you might want to give some... Um, anesthesia of the nerve that um, is in charge of the blink which is the a branch of the facial nerve the auriculopapiral nerve um, and it's a nerve that you can easily block at different points over the zygomatic arch um, and that might give you or that might allow you to open the eyelids a bit better for you to see into the eye or actually the eye at all sometimes is, is that quite a common thing that you would you would do or is it depend on on whether you actually the horse is physically trying to blink you out of it um so the main indications would be um painful eye um that you can't mechanically open um 
or other procedures such as um, some standing procedures that we do in horses, like keratectomies or some implant um, um, injections underneath the conjunctiva, etc., that we need to put a speculum, uh, which is an instrument that we use to keep the eyelids open throughout the procedure. So for that, we will need the horse not to be able to blink it out, if you like. So we block the eyelids on that stage as well. On an exam, clinical examination point of view, is mainly if the horses are painful. I don't routinely do it if um, if the horse is not painful because I feel that you can, um, if you if you opened, if you use your index finger to lift the upper eyelid um, well and the low and the thumb to bring the lower eyelid down, you can have a quite good look um, onto the eye. And I tend to focus at one area at a time, so I move my fingers um, to expose different areas of the eye so I don't all the time have the whole eye exposed um, and I that works well for me but if you add a little bit of pain uh, because it's got an ulcer or a foreign body always in flame um, you might need that extra help with a block um, so it's, it's um, easy enough block to do we routinely use maybe bacaine and just a couple of mLs at the region of the auriculopapural nerve um, and give it a few minutes that's good and when you're approaching like a, a horse, do you, do you do the same thing? So would you, um, obviously it's put it in stocks, examine the eye. Do you do Sherman tear tests and then have a look with the ophthalmoscope or what's what's your steps? Protocol. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the steps are general, generally quite similar in broad all the species. Um, from a distance exam to a hands-on exam, uh, when we start part of the neuroophthalmic examination and then using our light equipment um, to examine the anterior and posterior segment of the eye. So the steps are quite similar. Um, it is true that in small animals uh, suffer a lot from dry eye, uh, especially dogs, um, and it's a step that we always do as a part of our complete examination in dogs. In horses, despite it being done, and I occasionally do it, um, I would not include usually that a part of, of my exam, especially if it's a horse that might be a little bit painful, um, since they don't tend to suffer from that eye as much. The main indication for a Schermatier test in a horse would be if you've had head trauma, especially at the area um, the base of the ear or the side of the face where the zygomatic arch is or even more dorsal that you have got um, involvement of the facial nerve the facial nerve car carries the parasympathetic innervation to the to the lacrimatic gland uh, so you can have neurogenic dry eyes um, so any head trauma up potentially do a shermer just the one off make sure that it's not very dry um, since then you, you even increase the chances of getting ocular surface problems if you can't blink and you can't tear. Um, so that would be the main indication when I do Shermis. The rest of the steps are quite similar. Um, a few um, important things is that um, obviously the horse's orbits are quite lateral compared to a lot of the small animals that they look forward, the horse looks sideways, so it's got a very big visual field. Um, compared to most of our species. So um, that's important for a couple of things. One of them is that if you want to check for an isochoria, um, meaning one pupil smaller or bigger than the other one, so not the same size pupils, um, you might need to do this from the front of the horse, a few feet in front of the horse, with um, very low light um, 
like the direct ophthalmoscope or a phenol or even a pen torch, a very low light device for, um, illuminating the center of the head of the horse. So you get a biotapital reflection from both eyes and then you can assess the difference on size of the pupils from both sides. But you need to do this from the front in the um, um, most of the rest of the exam, you'll be on the side of the horse since the eye is actually so lateral. Um, and the other, the other important thing about the fact that the eyes are so lateral is that, and they've got a very large visual field, is that when we do menace response, we check medial and lateral field, um, visual field. So we, if you stand on the side of the head of the horse, you can use your right hand to uh, stimulate in, uh, response from the horse's medial field and your left hand um, to stimulate the lateral fi visual field. Are, Since, the, are, they, are they pretty reliable uh, menacing like, rather than, say, other species that might sort of yeah, just stare and, and sometimes if you've got um, a uvial cyst that we might talk about later and it's very lateral, since they can be located in the pupil in one side, you might like visual field from one side only. Um, that you might not have a menace response from laterally and that might give you more indications that that cyst might be actually causing some issues to the horse. Um, and if you don't do that step, you might miss that. And so um, if you put sort of fluorescein over, over the cornea and have a, and wash that off and see, see if there's any sort of stain uptake, is there, is there any, anything sort of different with the anatomy of the equine eye with the external structures as in third eyelids or meibomian glands? That, that is that is a kind of like a trap for young players. Um, mm, I think you need to be a bit generous with the amount of fluid that you use. For example, on fluorescent staining um, or topical anaesthetic. In small animals, one drop is more than enough. Actually, in horses, you need to be a bit more generous. Um, the orbit is quite full in the horse, so sometimes it's difficult to uh, manage opening the eye and putting drops at the same time. So you might want to um, just avert the lower eyelid and apply the drops in the outer surface of the third eyelid, which is a safer area that if you, the horse moves or you end up by touching this, the eye, if you touch this, the conjunctival surface might be the, the safest place. This, the conjunctival surface of the third eyelid might be the safest place to actually accidentally touch the surface. Um, so you always need to think that um, obviously the big animal, depending on what you're sedated with, might have um, um, head um, movements or might be painful. So you always need to be aware of the, the you know, the, the magnitude of the animal. So you need to be a bit, a bit aware that it can move actually and damage your equipment or can move or, and put the drops in its eye as well. So when you're having a look at the external structures of the of the eye and you're wanting to um, make sure that there's no sort of foreign material or foreign uh, bodies around there that I suppose that, that I imagine there's quite common? Yes. Yeah. So, so what tools do you use? Because I, when I was taught, and this is probably inappropriate, but you maybe use uh, you know, Q-tips or cotton buds right. to try yeah, and yeah, sort of go yeah. behind the third eyelid once, yeah. that, once you've uh, put some local in. Like, yeah. can... Do you do similar things with, with ponies? Or? Similar, yeah. So um, obviously they're very prone to trauma, both sharp, like a thorn or foreign body, um, to, as well as blunt trauma. Um, and if you've got a very painful eye or even a nose uh, that you can't identify the cause, it's always worth checking all the conjunctival foreknage, which is actually really big in the horse. 
um, all underneath the lower eyelid, lateral canthus, upper eyelid, all the surface of the third eyelid. So you need to very pull, push the globe um, into the orbit so the third eyelid protrudes um, and is really uh, quite large. So you need to make sure that you look at all the outer surface as well as the inner surface. Um, so if I want to check for foreign bodies, what I do is I get local anesthetic, I give it a few minutes, the horse will probably be sedated, um, and I might have blocked the auriculopapiral nerve. Um, and then I sometimes even put globes, and I just use my index finger to run it around all the surface of the, uh, all the conjunctival surface. And you might need some quite atraumatic forceps to avert the third eyelid. I really like a pair of forceps which I call Bennett, forceps which have got quite rom ends but they're not teethed but they actually hold the third eyelid quite well so you need to in a way neatly um, run the forceps over the cornea to to grab the edge so they can be quite it can be a, a little bit dangerous procedure for the surface of the eye when you do it so you need to be um, have a very still horse properly um, anesthetized and uh, use the right equipment and, and do you use a lot of flush rosé when you when you're examining that that the those conjunctival folds as well? Do you or do you just run your finger around your obviously sterile club finger? But do you, do you run that around or do you use a bit, a bit of uh, fluid as as well? Yeah, you could you could use a syringe and use the pressure of the of the saline to, um, especially if you've got quite a lot of discharge. See if something comes out with the discharge as well to. Um, remove any debris that might be um, and it's possible that if you find a foreign body that might not be the only one so if you definitely do find a foreign body make sure you clean and flush the surface properly yeah and, and would you uh, look at, at both eyes so say if you find a foreign material and one yes, eye you always that, look that's at the something other that is uh, very important in any eye case really so um, one of the yeah interesting things about ophthalmology but one of the um of the errors that a lot of general practitioners do is that they've got a very obvious change on one eye. Let's say um, it's got an opacity in the cornea or blot in the eye or something. Um, and they focus on that change without actually looking at the rest of the eye or even the contralateral eye. Now, systemic conditions and, and ocular uh, signs of stem condition in horses are not as common and it's in other species but there's a lot of reasons specifically trauma or big diseases like EIU that we need to make sure that we look at both eyes so um, if you have a trauma like we were talking about definitely look at the other at the other side as well see if there's another thorn or a little bit of, of grass or something else that can cause issues onto the other side um, and so, so mo moving on in your ocular exam, are there, are there any difference looking at the, the posterior and then anterior parts of the eye compared to um, other, other species that we might deal with? So anatomically, they're different. They go, um, so the equine globe is a bit more um, oval, horizontal. So all the structures in the anterior segment, meaning in front of the lens, they're sort of like oval horizontal. So the cornea, the pupil, um, uh, and the palpebral fissure are in this sort of like orientation. Um, on the iris, we'll find the granular iridica, which is um, at the edge of the pupil, dorsally mainly, but also ventrally. Um, function is clearly unknown, 
completely unknown, but it's supposed to help with UV um, entrance into the into the eye. So um, it just gives a bit of shade, sort of thing. Um, if you look at a, if you look at a horse um, on bright light, you'll see how small the pupil can get. So this granary ridica covers a lot a lot of the pupil, and the pupil is very very myotic. So that's one another reason why we need to look them in dim light. Um, because outside on a field, you won't be able to see anything else past the iris. Iris um, <clears throat> is usually quite pigmented um, in the horse. Um, and then we've got a lens, which is quite large. Um, so if we want to examine the lens, like in other species, we might need to dilate. The drug I would recommend to use for dilation for examination will be tropi tropicamide. Um, you can find it in 0.5% or 1%. Um, definitely not atropine, which is something that the equine practitioner or general practitioner might have quite available. Uh, but atropine will give us a slow start midriasis that will last longer, up to a week in a horse. Um, so you really want to use a short acting early start midriatic sagistropicamide for your exam. Okay. So if you were to examine the fundus completely or the lens completely, you might need to dilate. Um, and if you got availability of a tonometry, you probably ought to do this before, um, especially if you suspect an intraocular disease such could be glaucoma or EIU. Uh, you might need to check the pressure before you dilate. Um, and then the posterior segment is really, really large. Um, they got, um, they can have some debris in the vitreous, uh, debris like some um, floaters are less as we get um, as they get older and they can have some um, membranes. If you see any membranes, I've just come across quite a few cases recently, they had vitreal membranes on preparation examination, um, which can be a normal age related change. But if you see it very unilateral in a very young horse, I would suspect um, that there might be something going on. So make the effort of examining the vitreous. Something going on, I mean, for example, EIU could be a very early sign of EIU. So it's something that might not need necessarily to be taken lightly, um, vitreal changes. So oh, always look at the vitreous as well. And then the fundus is quite different than the ones that we might be more uh, commonly used to with just a small animal fundus. Um, they have a different vascular pattern of the retina, so the retina is not as vascularized as um, dogs and cats, um, which they have what's called um, holoangiotic fundus. So horses have got a poor angiotic fundus, which basically the blood vessels um, come out of the edge of the optic nerve for a bite for about one and a half optic nerve distance from the optic nerve. Um, in a dog and a cat, they'll feel the hole of the back of the eye. Um, so they're less obvious um, than we might expect them. Um, if we were used to, to look at other species, but um, they're very important to be assessed uh, on a fundus exam because again, yet an, another sign of such a severe disease as EIU could be um, atrophy of these blood vessels. Um, in case of doubt, always check the other eye and the more optic nerves that you look at, the more um, retinal blood vessels that you look at, um, the more likely you will realize when there's one that's quite small. So I think looking at the back of the eye would be something that I would routinely do in a health check um, horse, for example. Um, and then obviously they've got a very large depitum and uh, usually depending of the um, horse's uh, coat and patterns, um, quite pigmented non-depital fundus as well. 
Okay. So when you are examining a horse's eye or even like both eyes, how, how long does this actually take you? Does it take you a mark like a lot longer than it would do if you were dealing with a dog or a cat? Um, they're bigger. So you need to spend a little bit more time to uh, looking at everything, um, especially the cornea um, or the iris. Um, that in a small animals, you very quickly just can look at the whole thing. Um, thinking about a slave examination, which is obviously something we do very routinely and might not be available in general practice, but that gives us up to 10, 16 times magnification. Um, so in a small animal, you can see the whole of the cornea nearly one visual field of the slate lamp. Um, with a horse or with a larger eye, like the horse eye, um, we might see only uh, under, under a quarter um, per visual field. So one trick I've got, which I try to teach our residents and students, is that when you look at the cornea, if there is one blood vessel, that blood vessel will come from the limbus. So you need to make sure that you look at 360 degrees around the limbus on a horse cornea. So you make sure that you're that you're not missing any blood vessel, because if you just have a not well organized systematic examination of the cornea, you might miss them simply because it's a very large surface to look into. So if you look at literally following all the clock hours around the limbus, which is the junction between the cornea and the sclera. Um, and you don't see any blood vessel crossing, then you're pretty sure that you haven't got any vascular, any vascular growth into the cornea, which could be a sign of keratitis or trauma or uveitis, etc. And you mentioned as well about measuring the intraocular pressure and to do that before you um, di dilate the pupil. Would you, would you do this with uh, any eye or would you more with a, with a painful eye? Oh, I definitely include it as a part of a complete examination. Um, sometimes with a painful eye is the eyes that you might not be able to do it so much since just even if you've blocked the eyelid and you're um, with the auricular papyral block and you open it gently to not put any pressure onto the globe, they tend to have a very powerful extraocular muscle so they tend to retract the globe quite a lot so this puts quite a lot of pressure on the sclera and then the intraocular pressure can falsely increase just by how you're holding the eye and the horse is holding the eye tight inward sort of thing um, so painful eyes might be the most difficult to check pressure on um, but I include um, intraocular pressure check in both eyes in all the, the cases I see because it just gives me a lot of information it just helps me obviously diagnose glaucoma with a higher pressure one eye compared to the other or higher than a normal range um, uveitis which can be quite insidious and mild sometimes so pressure might add that little bit more to convince me that I have got a case of EIU for example in front and even any eye that is a bit red painful cloudy which can be again sign of both glaucoma and uveitis but also keratitis for example so if i check the pressure in those eyes the eyes that got keratitis it's likely that the pressure is normal so it also helps me with cases that are not glaucoma and uveitis to diagnose them because i'm able to rule out the others so i think it's a very important step and um, there are several devices that we could use um, the most commonly available in practice are the tonneau pen and the tonneau vet um, one is a, a planation tonometer, the other one is a rebound tonometer. Um, so they both estimate the pressure based on the hardness of the cornea. So if you've got corneal pathology, you might get 
uh, uh, not the correct reading, uh, but they're good enough. Um, and again, you've got a normal light potentially to compare it to. Um, with the tonneau pen, which is the one that looks more like a pen device and can be white or blue handle, um, you need to apply topical anesthetic before, which in the horse I will use tetracaine, a couple of doses of tetracaine and give it a few minutes and then you can um, check the pressure with the tonneau pen. Um, and the other is the tonovet. The tonovet is a great um, um, tonometer, uh, relatively e easy to use when you are familiar with it, but it's a little bit what I call temperamental. You need to do the right thing, you need to be the right distance from the eye, um, the right angulation towards the eye, etc., for it to get a, a reliable reading. If not, it just won't give you proper readings. But if you've got a tonal vet, um, you can uh, definitely use that on the horse as well as on a small animals, and the same for the tonal pen. Can I just ask, when you're using a tonal pen or, or you're measuring um, the pressure in the eye, are you trying to uh, have their horse's head at a certain angle? And also, as you, as you said, the eye itself is quite large and uh, almost oval. Are you? Is it important to measure the pressure at a certain point in the eye with its with its head um, elevated or a normal position? Because I imagine that is there's got to be a lot of variability in in the way the the horse is at the time the best thing is to have the the head at a heart level um so not too high not too low obviously again we've got quite a lot of variability of height of horses as well so that's a good trick always have it at high a hard level um and um i always aim for the axial cornea which is the central cornea um unless the center of the cornea doesn't look healthy so as we said before, both tonometers that we've got available for clinic are, um, uh, estimate the pressure depending how the characteristics of the cornea are. So if you've got an abnormal cornea, let's say you've got a scar or you've got edema, um, it's possible then that the reading is not going to be that accurate um, if you check the pressure in that specific point. So you might want to move a little bit ventral or lateral whenever you have to go that the cornea looks, looks more normal um, and get the reading at that point. But if you can choose, go for the center. Excellent. That's where the tonometers are made for, to check the pressure in the center. Excellent. And so all of this is just taking you uh, a couple of minutes to uh, to do and uh, yeah. Yeah, probably. Depending, depending on how good the horse is and uh, how many things are there to look at. We like detail. Um, um, note taking, which is another important thing, uh, especially on equine ophthalmology uh, and ambulatory of um, equine uh, practice, that you might see a horse and then your colleague sees a horse um, next time because you're not on that area. So I think note taking is very important on um, ophthalmology in general, but potentially even more important in, 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 with horses since you might not follow your case. So note taking is it can be very important. So I'll try to be as detailed as I can with the description of what I'm seeing from color, size, contour of the edges, and position. Uh, so if you can um, tell in which part of the eye that opacity or change is perfect, and if it is, for example, in the cornea or on the iris or on the lens, you can use something as easy as um, um, describe it as per clock hours. So which clock hours is it affecting? How many clock hours are affected? 
um, and then you treat each iprocephala if it was a clock. So between one and three o'clock position, um, white opacity with sharp edges and um, vascularization between two and three. Rosé, has technology um, changed the way that you approach horses as well? Because I imagine like taking a photo of a dog or cat's eyes, I find quite challenging when I try have a, you know, have attempted it, particularly with a smartphone or anything like that. But if but do you, do you is that easier? With a with a horse's eye, do you guys use that? Not necessarily part of the clinical record, but just because you, because it is quite an easy thing to do. Or do you find actually taking pictures of horses' eyes is actually as difficult as taking it of oh, any species? It's always in all the species extremely helpful. I um, I think if you ask any of the team, I'm probably the picture geek. <laughs> so I've got a massive collection of pictures. So I literally picture every eye I see, um, as much as the camera is you know close by. Um, and I would definitely include that on, on, on your cases if you could. Um, for continuity, for monitoring purposes, or even just to see how things change with time. Um, ophthalmology in general is a very visual um, field in a way. So um, the surface of the eye, the, the, the anterior segment of the eye from the iris to the cornea and eyelids are very pictorial. So you can definitely record a lot of your findings on, on camera. Um, if you're trying to monitor cataract size or uh, is that ulcer getting smaller, is it healing, is it, is it isn't. If I wasn't good enough to estimate how many millimetres was it affecting, etc. So the, the pictures can definitely help you. Um, another good use of smartphones is actually for fundus imaging. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of apps that you can use on smartphones that will allow you to um, record with the flash on. And that's all you need, really. And the horse eye is particularly good um, if you're in a dark environment because it's a very large eye with a relatively large pupil. So you can shine your smartphone um, through the pupil quite close. You need to be quite close to the eye um, and record and you can record what you're seeing in the in the in the in the back of the eye quite nicely. So uh, doesn't need much of a technology, <laughs> just your normal smartphone. Sometimes, especially if the eye is visual, um, the light can be quite bright. So you can dim it by uh, putting a few layers of primapore or some sort of like um, drape um, uh, on top of your flash. Obviously, not covering the camera end, but um, so the light is less. Um, less bright into the eye and you can take really nice videos again applicable to all species um, but you can get quite a smaller pupils with other smaller animals so the horse is particularly good one to do this i suppose size has some benefits uh, uh, imagine for uh, for taking those those videos that, yeah. that's that's great um and uh you told me there was no difference between examining a, a horse and a, and a dog and a cat but there is there's lots yes, of it's actually when you think about it you I, I don't think i would ever stick my finger around the sort of uh, <laughs> eye, eye of a dog or a cat probably with that's it, true with <laughs> really not a good out. idea Sorry for the abrupt end uh, uh, to that part of the podcast, but we'll wrap it up there. Many thanks for your time today, Rosé, um, and thanks you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends, and we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. 
You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.